morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We began looking at Genesis chapter 4 last week. Uh, We began thinking about, talking about the story of Cain and Abel. And we're going to pick up and continue uh, discussing that story this week. I'm going to read the whole chapter so we get the whole context. So we'll read Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Before we do that, though, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have given us uh, your word uh, to teach us what is true and right and good, to uh, point us to our Savior. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, who works inside of us to give us Uh, minds to understand, eyes to see, ears to hear. Uh, We pray that he would be at work now. We thank you that you've given us your church, that we're not left to ourselves, but we're brought into a community in which we can uh, learn and grow and seek to serve you. And so, Father, we pray that right now you would pour out your spirit, that you would be with us, that you would open our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 4, beginning uh, with the first verse. Now Adam knew his Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. 
He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, I got the privilege of being with David's family on Friday afternoon, and I was overwhelmed with uh, the, the generations of godly people in that home, and, and it goes back even further, right? David has often talked about his grandmother and her godliness and her love for scripture, and I don't think I've ever felt so privileged to be at a family gathering, even my own. Uh, it was humbling to see uh, one generation after another of people resting in the gospel and rejoicing in God's grace, even in the face of death and sadness. It was an incredible encouragement to me to be there and a tangible reminder of God's faithfulness generation after generation. And, and that, that struck me so much, I think, uh, or I think about it right now because of the striking contrast that that is to the family of Cain. Uh, we're looking at two different ways this morning. And the family of Cain, on the other hand, was self-destructive. Um, I've known a number of people in my life who self-destructed. You may have as well. They lived their lives in such a way that, uh, that caused themselves more and more pain. The longer they lived, the more difficult things became until finally their self-destructive behavior caught up with them. Sometimes it meant the end of a marriage. Sometimes it meant the end of their lives. It's a, a tragic story played out too often. Uh, the Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 14, 12, there, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And most of us probably know someone for whom that was literally true. This tragic narrative is nothing new. Right? Jude talks about such living. Jude, you know, is a book of the Bible. It's one of those ones that we never read because it's so short. <laughs> Jude. Uh, Jude talks about such living as the way of Cain. And it's a fitting title because Cain is the father of all those self, whose self-destructive tendencies snowballed, uh, as we see in his family line. And so there, there are two types of families, uh, those whose godliness goes on from generation to generation, and those whose sin snowballs. Now, God can interrupt this pattern, of course, and he has done that for some of us in good ways. Uh, but this morning, we're going to just look at the, the two ways of living, the two patterns, right? The two types of families, two identities, two paths, two powers, and two ends. First, two identities. Every way of life is rooted in an identity. How I live flows out of who I am. Uh, we find all kinds of identity markers in scripture, right? We are children of God, beloved, saints, holy in Christ. On the flip side, there are the self-righteous or the wicked or the fool or the ungodly. 
how we live flows out of who we are. We began looking at Cain last week, uh, but it's, it's worth a quick review of, of what we talked about. The Cain and Abel story is one of those tragic tales, right? Two brothers, two offerings, one accepted, the other rejected, and Cain, angry that his brother is accepted while he is rejected, murders his brother and then lies about it to God. Why was Cain so angry? Clearly, he thought he should have been accepted. Uh, he thought what he had done deserved acceptance, and it mattered to him, right? God's refusal to accept him felt like an injustice. Cain saw himself as a righteous man. His actions, he thought, proved that. When God refused to affirm Cain and his way of life, it was a blow to, at Cain's core. God didn't affirm Cain for who he was. Apart from God, many of us try to build an identity by our works, whether religious, like Cain's offering, or secular, whether through moral uprightness or technical feats of skill. We try to find something in this life that will prove our worth, that will justify our existence, that will show that our lives have meaning and value. We want to prove, as, as the song from The Greatest Showman says, that, that we are glorious, we want to prove that because we were create, we want to prove that because we were created glorious, right? We were created glorious in the image of the Father, but sin has tarnished that glory, and we spend our lives trying to get it back. Many of us can do quite a bit in our flesh, right, in this present age, but if we see our identity as flowing out of our works, Whatever we do then becomes under the umbrella of, of me trying to prove myself or me trying to make a name for myself or me trying to justify my existence or prove my worth to those around me, which means everything we do is about me. We see our identity as flowing out of our works. Our best deeds are fundamentally uh, selfish, right? Motivated by ego and not the other. You see, God's refusal to accept our works is not because God is picky, uh, it's not that he's a perfectionist, though he is perfect. Uh, it, it's that all of our deeds are tainted with self, self-promotion, self-will, self-aggrandizement. Cain didn't want to please God. He wanted God to affirm that he was a pretty good guy. When God refused to act like Cain's cheerleader, God, uh, Cain showed his true colors and got angry. We need to check our hearts, right? Is, is my desire to please my father in heaven or for God to affirm me? Is God there to make me feel good, or am I here to respond in thanks to the one who gave me life? Now, that's the offering of Abel, right? Abel offered the best of what he had, the fat portions of the firstborn. It was a way of giving thanks for everything that God had given him. His religious act was not a way of proving how good he really was. It didn't have anything to do with him at all. It was a way of giving thanks to the one who made all things. Cain's identity was, I'm, I'm a I'm a, Cain's identity was, I'm a pretty good guy. Just look at how good I am. Abel's identity was, I'm a creature, fallen yet accepted, made by God, distorted by sin, and yet accepted by grace. So I give thanks to God for his goodness to me, right? There, there are at root two fundamental identities. I can see myself as, as one who has something to offer to God. Uh, he should accept me. I mean, look at what I bring to the table. Look at what I have to offer where I can see myself as undeserving, a creature made by God, obligated to serve him, fallen, distorted by sin, deserving of damnation, and yet loved and accepted by grace, received by radical mercy. So as you approach God, right, do you think, well, God should accept me? I mean, I, I have something to offer. Look, 
I'm a pretty good guy after all. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or do you think I'm a, I'm a creature fallen and yet loved? As we move forward, we'll see that that love is found in Christ. And so the way to know yourself in this way is first to know Christ. Uh, we are creatures fallen yet loved because God became a man. The son became a creature. The one who was loved by the father suffered for fallen creatures that we who are fallen creatures might be loved by the father. So there are these two different identities and they put us on two different paths. Uh, it's nothing radical to say that, that life is a journey, right? Many, many of the great works of literature or film talk about this journey, right? From the Odyssey to the Hobbit, uh, to Castaway, to Jumanji, right? Uh, life is a journey. It's, it's moving in a direction. Uh, but not all journeys are created equal. In fact, there are really two radically diverging paths. Uh, Jesus mentions this in Matthew 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Two diverging paths. When God punishes Cain for murdering his brother, he says this in Genesis 4, uh, verses 11 and 12. He says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, in the ancient Near East, when uh, someone was murdered, a close relative would seek him out to avenge his murdered relative. But when one relative murders another, right, things got tricky. Often the path forward was to exile the relative rather than to kill him. The first readers of Genesis would have understood the story this way. Of course, no one avenged Abel, right? Who would have done it? Adam? One of Adam and Eve's other unmentioned children? Avenging their brother for their brother's blood? No, exile was Cain's punishment. Further from Eden, further from God's presence, Cain was to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Now, now Cain, in his hardness of heart, right, without a hint of remorse for his sin, he complained about this punishment, because ironically, he is afraid of being killed. God, out of sheer mercy for the undeserving, does something uh, we don't know exactly what to protect Cain. He gives Cain some kind of a sign of that protection. But I, I think actually the interesting note uh, that I want to point out is a little further on. In Genesis 4, verse 16, we read, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, Nod, as uh, I, I think is uh, in the ESV footnote, Nod means wandering. Uh, Cain settles in the land of wandering. Uh, that, that's an odd statement. It's almost self-contradictory. He settles in the land of wandering. Uh, to add further irony, Cain goes out and he or his son Enoch, there's a, a bit of ambiguity in the language, one of the two builds the first city, the first settlement so the man cursed with wandering settles in the land of wandering and builds the first settlement. It's, it's weird language. There's a tension there. Do you feel the oddness of it to settle in the land of wandering? But con contrast that with others in the book of Genesis, especially Abraham, who we'll get to. Uh, Abraham was a pilgrim and a stranger on earth. Now listen to what Hebrews says about Abraham in, in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as, as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Cain settled in the land of wandering. Abraham was a pilgrim in the land of promise. What we have here is two fundamentally different paradigms. They, they can look superficially similar, but they're actually just the opposite. Do you remember how Cain's life of wandering begins? Verse 16, he went out from the presence of the Lord, and then he settled in the land of wandering. And here's the idea, I think. Our, our true home is in the presence of our Father. We are not home unless we are in the presence of our Father. Cain left his father's presence and so was condemned to a life of spiritual homelessness. Well, what do you do when you're spiritually homeless? You settle physically. When this world is all you've got, you try to make the best of it. So spiritually homeless, uh, as Cain is, he puts down physical roots in the land of wandering. Contrast that with Abraham. God has prepared a city for him. He has an eternal home in the presence of his father. And so he lives physically as a pilgrim because this world is not his home. This world is not our home, right? Our home is where the father is. Jesus, out of love for us, left the father, left his home, entered into the created order as a baby, had no place to lay his head, he experienced physical homelessness, and then he, he went to the cross where the father turned his back on him, experiencing spiritual alienation. Why did Jesus do all of that? So he could taste for us what we deserve because of sin. But then he rose from the dead in the body and ascended back into the Father's presence in his body. Why? So that we too might be restored to our Father's presence, so that we too might come home. What this means practically is, is friends, this life is a pilgrimage. This present age is not your home. If you belong to Christ, this is not your home. One day Jesus will return and all things will be made new. Heaven and earth will become one and we will dwell in restored bodies in our Father's presence forever. We will be home. But for now, we live as pilgrims in the land of promise. In the meantime, we live here. We, we use the things of this life, but we must never settle. For we are pilgrims, not wanderers going nowhere, but pilgrims headed toward our heavenly promised land. And so there are two identities and two diverging paths and two powers. Uh, I'm actually, I'm consumed with the idea of power. I know, I know what you're thinking, uh, Luke, you're not supposed to say that kind of thing. Uh, but hear me out, hear me out. I am consumed with, enamored with, and in awe of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's power made perfect in our weakness. And Paul goes on to say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, can I say something that, that I think is fairly true of most of us in this room? Uh, most of us in this room are strong. And here's what I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but what, here's what I mean. We, we are smart, successful people. And that brings it with, with it a very real, tangible danger. 
What we have is a gift from God. It's not to be rejected, whatever we have. But the danger is that we, re we rely on such things rather than seeking God's power made perfect in our weakness. Cain's line was strong. Cain walks out of God's presence in defiance. Pretty soon, he and his son Enoch are building a city. Uh, many wonder, by the way, right? Many, many wonder where Cain's wife came from in verse 17. Uh, maybe you've had that thought as well. Uh, people wonder that because we assume at, that at this point, there are only three people on the earth, uh, Adam and Eve and Cain. Uh, the, the problem with that assumption is that it, it actually misunderstands the way Hebrew narrative works. Uh, Hebrew narrative is selective. It's intentional and it's sparse. It gives only those details that are relevant for the story. And so all kinds of details are left out. Things that we are, are often curious about, but God just doesn't care to tell us because they're not important. Like where did Cain's wife come from? Well, Adam and Eve had been having other children. This story is only about two of them. So only two of them are mentioned. And that, by the way, also explains who Cain was afraid of. Uh, he was afraid of one of his one of their brothers avenging Abel's death. So Cain begins a family and builds a city. And we're not told a ton about Cain and his family, but from what we are told, here's what we know. They, they were actually, for that time, they were a technologically advanced family. Uh, Jabel is said to be the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Now, to be the father of here does not mean physically. Uh, the, the point is he founded right, an industry. He founded a, a way of life. Possibly he developed new techniques of caring for livestock. He, he was kind of the beginning. He was the Henry Ford of livestock. His brother Jubal was the father of those who played the lyre and pipe. Jubal was on the cutting edge of music, inventing instruments, making new sounds that hadn't yet been heard. And their half-brother Tubal Cain sharpened instruments of bronze and iron. He manufactured tools. Again, he was on the cutting edge of the technology of his day. Now, there's nothing wrong with technology in and of itself. That's not where we're going. That would be a misread of the story. These advances in technology, though, did take place in the line of Cain. But the point is not that technology is wrong, but again, that, that technology brings with it certain kinds of temptations. It brings with it strength and competence and ability and control. And with strength comes the temptation to self-reliance. One commentator said the family of Lamech could handle its environment, but not itself. Right? Technical power, but moral inability. Again, uh, that same commentator said, Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. We're very good at developing all kinds of skills, except controlling our own hearts. How often do we marvel at our technical skills? We seek to perfect our technical skills, but we ignore our moral failures. We have so lost, I think, any sense of moral goodness. I've heard people say that God is not good. He's great which totally misunderstands the affirmation that God is good, right? God is good, he is morally good. Uh, but you see the point, right? We can so focus on technical abilities that we ignore our moral inability. And so we rely on ourselves to get the job done, whatever that job is. I mean, who needs God when we have microwaves and power tools and Amazon and vaccines? Now, the problem uh, is not with microwaves and power tools and Amazon and vaccines. The problem is the way that we view these things or use these things. We forget that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
We forget that all good comes from God. We forget that whatever our skill in building may be, we can only do it because of God's blessing. In Haggai, God talks about a time when he removes his blessing from his people. Haggai chapter one, he says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. See, when we rely on ourselves, on our strength, on our technical prowess, God often frustrates that so that we realize it is not about our strength. It's about God's power made perfect in our weakness. But that was not the case with the other son of Adam. Uh, Look at verses 25 and 26, the end of the chapter. Uh, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, Eve's words here are different than they were at the beginning of the chapter. And uh, again, Eve exercises her authority as a mother and names her child. We see some growth, though, in Eve. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Eve said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And, And while she clearly acknowledges God's help in chapter four, verse one, and called him Lord, Uh, some say she is still the one who got in that first verse. But here it's different, right? That there's there's a little more humility in her wording, perhaps. God does all the work as as it were. He has appointed another child, Seth. Seth then has a son and names him Enosh. Enosh, uh, like like the name Adam, is the Hebrew, uh, a Hebrew word for mankind or humankind. But unlike Adam, it seems that the Hebrew word Enosh emphasizes humanity's weakness and mortality. Uh, Like Abel, actually. Abel's name, by the way, uh, is the word found in Ecclesiastes for vanity or vapor. It's the name for Abel. Again, Enosh's name is symbolic of something more. Psalm 90, verses 3 and 4 says, You return man, Enosh, to dust and say, return, O children of man. And Psalm 103 says, as for man, Enosh, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. And so Seth, uh, maybe in light of his brother Abel's death, has a sense of the frailty of life. It's impermanence, humanity's weakness. And he names his son accordingly. What does that sense of weakness do? Well, the last sentence of Genesis 4, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. A sense of weakness leads to a life of prayer. A focus on human technical skill leads to a life of self-reliance, right? And as we will see, worse. But a sense of weakness leads us to a life of prayer. And we, we can... We can judge, right, how much we sense our own weakness by looking at our prayer life. Prayerlessness is functional independence. Prayer is dependence upon our Father. And just think of the times in your life when you have prayed the most. When was it? Normally during a time of struggle, a time of pain, a time of confusion, a time of difficulty, right? Our sense of our weakness, out of a sense of our weakness, we cry out to God. And that's good. 
the problem is not that we cry out to God when things go bad. The problem is that we don't have that same sense of weakness all the time. But we would if we saw life rightly, that my talents are not mine, but gifts of my father, that they, the fruit they bear doesn't come from them alone, but from God's blessing. And that truly, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. It's good that God's power is made perfect in weakness because the truth is I have nothing but weakness. Even my strengths are weaknesses because of the precariousness of human life and the randomness of life's events. Uh, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says at one point, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. His point is, right, who wins the battle? Not necessarily the strongest. Who gets the award? Not always the smartest. Who wins the race? Not necessarily the fastest, right? There are too many variables for that to always be true. So what do we do? Well, we could clench our fists and grit our teeth and just try harder and muscle through. Or we could recognize that though we can bring about nothing in our own power by our own strength, we serve a God who has everything in his hands. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And so we step out in faith asking for his blessing. Again, the, the solution, right, is, is not to reject our strengths, but to recognize their very real limits. And so turn to our God for his blessing. Whatever strengths we have, our gifts from God, whatever fruit comes from them comes by God's blessing. Truly apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, I, I, I have to pause here to point something out. It's something... Uh, about the artistry of the book of Genesis. And I keep skipping over so much for time's sake. And there's, there's so much beauty in these first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, you know, some people say that these chapters are kind of a patchwork of inconsistent and contradictory sources thrown together by an inept editor. But that is not actually what we find when we turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, in fact, uh, we find incredible depth to the artistry. Uh, Genesis 5 verse 1 begins a new section in Genesis. They're, they're pretty clearly delineated. We'll get to that in the future. But um, what that means is this chapter 4, the last verse, closes this section. And, uh, and, and Gordon Wenham, uh, an Old Testament uh, scholar, says this about the first two sections of Genesis. He says various key words in the narrative reappear uh, or appear a multiple of seven times. Seven, of course, is a, a biblical number for perfection. Uh, God created the world in seven days. And so this number seven keeps popping up. Uh, within chapter four, verses one through 17, Abel and brother each occur seven times and Cain 14 times. Uh, within the whole of chapter two, verse four through 426, the second section in Genesis, earth, earth is mentioned seven times, uh, land 14 times and God, the Lord or the Lord God, some 35 times exactly matching the 35 occurrences of God in the first section of the book of Genesis. You have God mentioned 35 times in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, and then 35 times in chapter 2, 4 through 4, 26, which means the last verse of chapter 4, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, contains the 70th mention of the deity in Genesis and the 14th use of the word call. And I just point this out, right? These things are not some sloppily thrown together story. This didn't just happen, these multiples of seven. It's, it's part of the beauty and the artistry of the book. Uh, something, uh, we, what, what we see here is something that is amazingly constructed and bears the fingerprints of our God. 
And so you have two identities. We must ground ourselves in being creatures fallen but loved in Christ. You have two paths. We must see ourselves as pilgrims headed toward our heavenly home with two powers, and we must step out knowing that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Finally, there are two ends. There are two, two ways of living, right? These two ways of living lead to two very different kinds of society, uh, subjugating others to our own ends or serving others for God's glory. Cain, out of sense of his self-righteousness, murders his brother, who was a symbol of his unrighteousness, uh, but the violence does not end there. Uh, Lamech comes along. Uh, he's the, I think Lamech is the seventh from Adam. Uh, he abuses women by taking two wives, and then he murders someone who insults him and sings a song about it. Rather than seeking protection from God like his ungodly father Cain, he takes matters into his own hands and promises 77-fold vengeance on the least insult. You see, if, if you look to your works for your identity, that will mean uh, two things for the way that you treat other people. First, you'll value them based on their works, right? As you evaluate yourself, so you will evaluate them. Second, you will hate others whenever and wherever they undermine that identity. You can't just agree to disagree here. Your very identity is at stake. And so here Cain kills Abel. He can't handle the truth of his own unrighteousness. Whatever I ground my identity in becomes sacred. And the moment you attack that sacred truth, you've started a war. If you look to this age for your strength, you will show no mercy. Mercy is weakness. There's no room for forgiveness. I've got to be strong. I've got to, to prove that I can take care of myself, which means I'm going to eat you for breakfast. Hence, Lamech kills a young man for offending him. The words used, the commentators say, are for a light offense. As one commentator put it, the savage disproportion of killing a mere lad for a mere wound is the whole point of his boast. Cain's pattern is anger and destruction, right? You die for me. You get in my way. You make me look bad. You undermine my sense of self. I destroy you. If something is wrong in our relationship. You're going to take that burden. What other way is there? That's all we've seen up to this point in Genesis. And, and we don't even see in the end of chapter four, we don't see the outcome of Seth's life here. But we can look to another seed of the woman. We can look to the one who was born, not just in place of Cain, right? But the second Adam. Jesus' pattern is compassion and self-sacrifice. Jesus didn't say, you die for me. He came to die for us. Something uh, was wrong in our relationship. Jesus says, I'm going to take the burden of that. And that's what he did. Jesus' pattern is to pursue reconciliation rather than attacking those who oppressed him, rather than killing those who offended him. He stepped into our shoes. He took on our skin. He bore our burdens. He died for our sin. He took the abuse, the scorn, the reproach that we might have life, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And then he calls us to do the same thing. In Matthew 18, uh, you, you probably will remember this. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus echoes Lamech's boast in reverse, right? Lamech says, if Cain is avenged seven times, perfect vengeance, then Lamech 77 times. And Jesus says to Peter, not just perfect forgiveness seven times, but abundant, over-the-top, unending forgiveness 77 times. Why would Jesus call us to that kind of radical forgiveness? Because that's what he offers to us. Jesus bears the burden, and we get the forgiveness, 
Imagine a society based on the principle of Jesus, right? He died for his enemies to show us mercy. And now we bear the burden of those with whom we disagree that we might show them mercy. See, there are two identities. We, we must ground ours in being creatures, fallen but loved in Christ. Two paths. We must see ourselves as pilgrims headed toward our heavenly home. Two powers. We step out knowing that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Finally, there are two ends. We are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus in bearing burdens and in showing mercy. May we be so overcome by God's grace in the cross that this will be true of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, on the one who came not to, not to lash out at his enemies, but to die for his enemies that we might find forgiveness and life in him. We pray, Father, that you would so transform us by that grace that we would be people who bear others' burdens and show mercy, just as our Lord Jesus did to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.